This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the ending discussion of this incredibly personal yet political play. Christy, give us a super abbreviated recap. Gary, in Act One, we meet the Youngers. They're living in the ghetto of Southside Chicago. We meet them Friday morning at the breakfast table as they discuss a big change that's coming. The next day, they'll, they will be receiving a $10,000 insurance check because of the untimely death of Walter Sr. But too many people are living in a small space, and there is tension in the air from the moment they wake up, wake up, and they have to compete for a place in the bathroom with the neighbors, the Johnsons. Every single person in that room has a different dream and vision for what should happen with that check. Walter wants to open a liquor store. Benita wants to go to medical school. Ruth wants to have a family, and Mama wants a house. And after a lot of tense conversations, Mama eventually walks out after a discussion which reveals that Ruth has put down a down payment on an abortion and Walter doesn't care. She goes and puts a down payment on a house, but the problem is that it's in a white neighborhood. She comes back and tells her family what she's done, but she also does one more huge thing. She gives the remaining money to Walter she asks him to put $3,000 in a savings account for Benita's education, but he can have the rest to put towards his dream of a liquor store. And now we're in Act 2, Scene 3. It's moving day, and my, how the mood has changed. Everyone is hopeful. Ruth is singing. Walter has taken Ruth out on a date. He's held her hand. Benita and Walter are picking on each other, but it's not mean. It's playful. They're united. They're dreaming. Ruth is dreaming of sitting in a bathtub, which I can understand, for however long she wants to because she is done with sharing with the Johnsons. And ready to move out. There's a couple of spots in this play where the banter between Walter and Benita is is fun sibling banter. When they're happy with each other, they're super playful. 
And they're fun to listen to. And at one point, as they're packing, Beneath and Walter are going back and forth. And Beneath is insulting Walter as being old-fashioned. And Walter makes a comment. And one of the main reasons why I want to bring this comment up is because it's historical. So Walter says, as he dances with Ruth, and he's talking to his sister, you know, when these new Negroes have their convention, and that is going to be the chairman of the Committee on Unending Agitation, as he points at Benita. And one reason why I highlight that, because in the book, as you're reading it, the term New Negroes is highlighted or capitalized. And it's a direct reference to the Harlem Renaissance. And it's a throwback to uh, one more of the underlying elements that Hansberry has worked in the story about W.E.B. Du Bois and his influence in the, the, the time period known as the Harlem Renaissance that's had such an impact on her. Well, and to, to speak to that, you know, when we listen to that incredible interview uh, with uh, Hansberry and she talks about, you know, the process of writing this play, she talks about how she is Benita. And she's a part, she is a new, a part of this movement of the new Negro. And she's excited, you know, she's a part of this new culture that's contributing culturally to the American society. And she, there's, she's a part of, of this political process that you're talking about. And she has a voice. And of course, Walter doesn't care about politics in that sense. And so he goes, race, race, race. Girl, I do believe you're the first person in the history of the entire human race to have sex successfully brainwashed yourself because she's just got so much enthusiasm <laughs> and optimism uh, for all this. And, and, of course, as any brother would, he wants to tear it down. And, of course, he can't. She's going to come back and say, sticks and stones might break my bones. I mean, how many brothers and sisters have right. used that exact same phrase? Yes, and so their banter is kind of fun. So, and then... The hammer falls. Mr. Linder walks through the door. He's described as a quiet-looking, middle-aged man in a business suit, and he introduces himself as a representative of the Clybourne Park Improvement Association, and he is the chairman of the welcoming committee of that association. And of course, Benita knows immediately what's going on, especially when he says at his that it's his job to see what new people who move into the neighborhood and give them the quote-unquote lowdown on the way we do things. But she's going to draw it out over the course of several back and forths and make him actually verbalize everything that he's trying to do. She's going to make him come out and say it exactly because she knows that this ultimately fails the say-out-loud test. He cannot get away with saying this and look like a good person. And I will say, she catches on, on way before Walter and Ruth, who kind of, for a second, think he actually is the right. welcoming. He's a nice guy. He's, He's really a, oh, there. Oh, he wants to welcome us. How so sweet. sweet. Yeah. So, and of course, so Ruth is going to um, sit, get him something, sit, sit down and get him a chair. Oh, you don't look comfortable and all that kind of stuff. Then he goes on. We've set up our our community and we share a common background and I want you to believe when I tell you that race prejudice simply doesn't enter into it and then you're like what is he talking about yes well (laughs) being southerners we're very familiar with the whole idea of killing with niceness it's actually taken to an art form in the south but we're in Chicago at this point 
And Linder is trying to uh, use the soft sell um, on the youngers as to why they may want to reconsider moving into Clybourne Park. And he starts off with a couple of interesting discussions. He says, most of the trouble exists because people just don't sit down and talk to each other. Well, that sounds highly reasonable. And he goes on to say, uh, the whole business is a matter of caring about the other fellow. Anybody can see that you are a nice family of folks, hardworking and honest, I'm sure. And we mentioned this in an earlier episode. The whole idea, the difference between nice and kind. Kind, you're actually looking out for the welfare of another person. Nice, you're setting them up to get something out of them and use them. This is a classic case of nice. And he is trying to work over the family really hard. And Walter really is confused. What do you mean? And then, of course, when he says, it is a matter of the people of Clybourne Park believing rightly or wrongly, as I say, then he comes out and says it, that for the happiness of all concerned, that our Negro families are happier when they live in their own communities. There he is looking out for the other guy's happiness. And there beneath it says, this, friends, is the welcoming committee. And so now Walter is just in total shock. Is this what you came marching all the way over here to tell us? And, of course, Linda is going to be offended that they're offended. Right. Yeah. And, of course, I love this line. Benitha gets religious. <laughs> 30 she, pieces of silver. and 30 pieces are not a coin less. Referring to Judas in the Bible who betrays Jesus with that uh, particular amount of money. Well, and then, so this, the scene collapses. Linda can't make the deal. He leaves. And Mama comes in, and she's wanting to understand what's transpired here. Well, and I want to point out that um, he's really offensive. I mean, this is this whole thing. If someone were to come into your home and say, you need to move because you don't belong in this group. We're working people. You're obviously working people, but you're not our kind of people. So this is super offensive as it's designed to be. But yet he's not really a threat. He's not no. a threatening character at all. He, he's trying to be threatening, but it's a fail. He's a loser, and he doesn't intimidate any of them. Which, interestingly enough, here's a little side note. If you watch the 1989 version of the movie, uh, the guy who is Linder, if you pay attention, is the voice of Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. Ah! So Perfect. They they found a character that that really portrayed this through Linda. I just think that's a funny side note. Well, and Walter, you know, he talks to Linda as an equal. He's not intimidated about this, and Linda continues to fight hard to make sure that he keeps the youngers at a distance. I mean, he doesn't want them to be people in a sense. He keeps calling them your people. I feel like maybe this isn't true, but. If he brings them in and calls them friend or brother, then he can't insult them like that. He's a bad person. Um, so uh, politeness is being used. This lack of respect is being used. But he, this distance is being used to empower him to be able to oppress somebody else in the nicest way possible. And, of course, Hansberry knows exactly how this feels because she, this was her personal experience. And it, it's a... A real function, a psychological function of racism. A real psychological function of racism is that you dislike the group, but you can find individuals that don't fit the group's interpretation. So you can like the individual. 
And so he's using purposeful language to keep him from liking the individual. Or even know them. Because if you know them, then you're going to like them. That's the point. And that's the common practice. And that works in any direction between any racial group. Well, they mock him. And I love it. One of my favorite lines is uh, Ruth, of all people, uses a racial slur. And after he gets ushered out the door, she goes, and that's the way the cracker crumbles. (laughs) And, of course, cracker is a super derogatory term. Uh, for white people, because he did. He he just crumbled, and he crumbled under uh, the strength of her of her husband. And she's empowered, and Mama's fixing her plant. And Walter's singing an old Negro spiritual. I got wings, you got wings, all God's children got wings. They go into heaven. Well, and I like the, the conversation that Benita has with Mama when she explains to Mama what actually went down. And she said, oh, Mama... They don't do it like that anymore. He talked brotherhood. He said everybody ought to learn how to sit down and hate each other with good Christian fellowship. Yeah, I've seen that before. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it is is threatening in a political sense, and Hansberry knows this, you know, but that's later. At this point, they got one on the man. They they stood up, and, and it's celebratory in every way. Until uh, we have another thing. And it's not um, going to come in the way of a white man. No, and it's, it's interesting because this, uh, this Act 2, Scene 3, really just has two events. It's got Linder coming in, trying to buy them out, and then we get the next thing. Yeah, and I do want to point out, if you haven't read the book in a while, the offer that Linder makes, because we didn't clarify that, he offers to buy their house from them for more than they paid for it. So they were going to make money on this deal. They were. And that's important because when we get to the very end of the story, that's going to play prominently into the decisions that are going to be made. And, you know, had he made it a business transaction, maybe he could have gotten away with it. But he made it a racial thing. And so now it's automatically demeaning. And difficult to accept, especially because Hansberry's key themes – in the whole story are about dignity and integrity and integrity in a, in a psychological sense, not so much in a moral sense. But. Right. And to say I can be bought is to lower myself and, and she's not going to do that. You can tell yeah. if she's the character of Beneatha, Beneatha is never going to do that. It doesn't matter. George Murchison has been trying that for quite some time. <laughs> yes. All right. So Bobo comes in and Bobo is going to kill everything. He comes in and he said, and Walter wants to know where Willie is. Okay, so give us a quick rundown on Bobo. So Bobo, which that name you just gotta love it. Bobo and Willie are his business partners. They're all gonna go into the liquor store together. And what we ultimately find out is they've all said that each of them has a particular amount of money, six thousand dollars, I guess. They don't really specify, and they're all gonna put in equally, and they're all gonna go in and buy this liquor store together. Well, Walter trusts them, and so when Mama gives him the $6,500, he gives it to Willie because Willie and Bobo are going to get their money, and then they're going to go out and buy this. this um, well, they were going to use the money to uh, bribe certain local government officials to get their licenses for the business. So Bobo was supposed to be doing this on this particular moving day, and he shows up, and Walter expects him to have good news. Oh, we got the license. We're going to get our liquor store. All is good. And he's going to say, uh, no. Uh, Bobo's going to say, first of all, he says, 
can I have a drink of water before I tell you about it? And then Bobo starts in, well, first of all, I didn't have any money. I just lied about that. So his, his best friends lied to him uh, about how much money. And Walter said, okay, what you telling me? Keep going. Uh, what happened in Springfield? And he's going to say, I didn't go to Springfield. Well, Springfield uh, is where they were, is the capital of Illinois, and that's where they were going to go get their permits. And he said, I didn't go because I didn't need to. And he's going to go on to say, this deal that me and Walter went into with Willie, me and Willie was going to go down to Springfield, spread some money around so we wouldn't have to wait so long for the liquor license. That's what you were going to do. Everybody said that was the way you had to do it. You understand, Miss Ruth. And then, of course, he's going to say, I'm trying to tell you. And Walter loses his mind. Then tell me, God damn it. This is extremely profane and anger-ridden. What's the matter with you? And he goes on to say, I'm talking about the fact that when I got to the train station yesterday morning, 8 o'clock, like we planned, Willie didn't never show up. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't know. I wanted... I waited six hours. I called his house, and I waited six hours. I waited in that train station for six hours, and, of course, Bobo's going to break into tears. That was all the extra money I had in the world. Man, Willie is gone. And Walter is in stunned silence because this has so many meanings. It's more than $6,500. It's his dream. It's the fact that he's standing there in front of his mother who had just trusted him with the money. His world is crumbling and collapsing, and he is actually having difficulty understanding what has just occurred to him. And Bobo has to say, what's the matter with you, Walter? When a cat take off with your money, he don't leave you no roadmaps. In other words, he's hopelessly gone. We will never see him again. Your money's gone. You got to own this. And, of course, he just groans. Willie, Willie, don't do it. Please don't do it. Man, not with that money. Man, please, not with that money. Oh, God, don't let it be true. I trusted you, man. I put my life in your hands. That money is made out of my father's flesh. And he says, I'm sorry, Walter. I had my life staked on this deal, too. And then he leaves. <laughs> wow. And then Walter has to look at his mama, and and his mama, this is the first time I see her break down. I mean, she was upset before, but she's going to break down, and she says, I seen him night after night, come in and look at that rug, and then look at me, the red showing in his eyes, the veins moving in his head. I seen him grow thin and old before he was 40, working and working and working like somebody's old horse, killing himself, and you... You give it all away in a day. She raises her arm and strikes him, and she's already hit him once. Yes, and of course, that comment was about Walter Sr. And so we're going to end this scene the way we ended scene one, with Mama berating Walter by comparing him negatively to his father and saying, as we end scene one, we end scene two, Walter Jr., you'll never be as good a man as Walter Sr. was. And, of course, he's been up at that high place. You know, she, Hansberry built him up to be this great hero, and now she just tore him down. And is he redeemable? Well, we're going to find out. And it's interesting. Uh, this is where Hansberry's excellent writing shows up time after time. She's setting you up for, for uh, redemption at some point. 
And right now, Walter Jr. is about as pathetic a character as you could imagine. And redemption for her is so different than, uh, you know, a cliche. It's not a cliche. It's not idealistic in any way. And she introduces what she means by redemption in a strange way to me. And, you know, I remember uh, when you had finished reading this play for the first time, one of the comments that you made to me, you said, it ends so strange. It ends so abrupt. There's so much struggle. And then the ending is something that you have to stop and really think about to find the meaning. And you were right. And it starts right here. And I really didn't even process it until you and I began to discuss it more and more recently with this conversation with Asagai. So she's going to bring back this um, intellectual, this Nigerian intellectual, which I want to point out, you know, again, uh, when we, we talk about um, where we got our information, Studs Turkel did an incredible job interviewing her during her lifetime. And I don't know who, he is really. <laughs> he's only one of the. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning oral historian. Well, if you have the internet, Google Studs Turkle, Lorraine Hansberry interview. He has a website, and it is absolutely amazing to listen to this woman talk about this play. First of all, you're going to fall in love with her voice. She just has such <laughs> yeah. elegance and cadence and. It's mesmerizing, and you want to listen to it over and over and over again. But anyway, that's a tangent. She's going to talk about the role of this particular character. She loves this character, and after listening to her, you know, at first I didn't like him because I thought he was kind of a schmuck to to Benita, but I've come around. uh, She made me come around because um, she makes you like him. Well, and in the interview, she talks about the fact that Asagai is the uh, collection of several intellectual Africans that she had um, crossed paths with. Yeah, actual university students that had been studying in New York, and she had taken the time to listen to what they were saying about their experience in colonial Africa, where they're trying to get rid of the British and the French and... uh, I guess the Dutch and all over all the Portuguese. Well, for a historical note, just to throw this in here for our listeners during this time period, at the end of World War II, uh, the, the empires that, that a lot of European countries had built were collapsing around the world. Uh, there were independent movements everywhere. And in the 1950s and the 1960s, the continent of Africa is in full swing with independence movements. So, her talking about independence movements and bringing in the character of Asagai is completely contemporary with her life at that time period. Well, and the idea is Asagai is an intellectual who's um, been through more than Benita has in her little situation in the ghetto of Chicago. Yes, it's bad what has happened to her and her family, but it's not as bad as the rape and persecution that he's seen where he came from. And he's had to process a lot of all these things. So this is a young man who's confident uh, in what he's about to say to her and, and the way that he looks at the world because he's thought about it way more than her. And in some ways, he takes he thinks she's cute because he sees the enthusiasm. Maybe he sees himself in her. But at this point, he's going to really fuss at her. Uh, on a real human level. He's concerned about the human race on a different level 
than well, she is. He is, and they are philosophically on the same plane. He's just significantly farther ahead. Right. And so he's going to make all these comparisons uh, with what she's uh, going through. And he's going to start off by saying, um, well, first of all, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? What are you all about anyway? Let's back up for just a second. We have to point out that when we open scene three, Asagai comes bounding in the house to help them move, to help them pack up. He's he's missed the tragedy, so he comes into the room upbeat, ready to go. <laughs> Yay, it's moving day excitement. <laughs> and they are all sitting around, and as Hansberry has given on the stage direction, profound disappointment. And so he... Like a happy lark bounds right in the middle of them, all this. Which, to his credit, that's such a nice thing to do. I never want to go visit people when I know they're moving because I hate <laughs> moving. <laughs> but anyway, he's gonna, she's going to immediately say, he gave away the money. He gave away the money, Asagai. And then she makes it about herself. I'm nothing. What's going to happen to me? I'm, you know, she, She's going to let all this abort her dreams. This is the end for us. And Asagai says, well, why did you want to be a doctor to begin with? And she tells him this personal story that she wanted to cure people. She wanted to help people. Um, and then he's, he's going to make it real. I want, she says this, I wanted to cure. It used to be so important to me. I wanted to cure. It used to matter. I used to care. I mean about people and how their bodies hurt. And Asagai's going to say, and you've stopped caring? Like, from yesterday to today? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And she's going to say, I think so. And he's going to say, why? And then she's going to fall into this despair, woe is me moment. And she's going to go on to say, because it doesn't seem, to, doesn't seem deep enough, close enough to what ails mankind. It was a child's way of seeing things or an idealist. And, of course, an idealist is a person that's not realistic about the way life is. Right. And also, guy says... Well, maybe you were childish, but sometimes basically children see things very well for what they are. And then she gets angry and um, she says to him, you still think you can patch up the world, cure the great sore of colonialism with the penicillin of independence. Now, wow, they jump into a super deep conversation just from him walking in the door on moving day. Well, but, she's mad. Yes. And I want to point out that... Um, Hansberry addresses this issue of what she thinks is realism, naturalism, optimism. And she's going to say that naturalism is when you see the world as it is and you don't see hope in it. Optimism is when you're unrealistic about the world. But realism is this idea that I see the world for what it is, but I still am going to have infinite hope that man can win to some degree. Can you give us an example of a naturalistic author? Oh, yeah. John Steinbeck and Of Mice and Men and uh, Grapes of Wrath. They're dark books. and <laughs> Everything and ends badly. <laughs> well, yeah, because and, and, they're, and he won the Nobel Prize because he reflected what real life can often look like. And it can be despairing. There's no doubt. But she doesn't take that outlook at all. In fact, she says naturalism needs to die. <laughs> okay. So she's going to say, we need to be informed about what's going on. And, and, and she is informed. When he talks about Africa, you know, he, she's not in the voice, and she speaks through the voice of Asagai. She doesn't have delusions of African innocence, that they're just going to come in and make everything Disney World. 
Which is interesting because that's part of their discussion that they have. Beneath is basically saying, since she's lost all hope and everything, what? why do we care? Why would we even want African independence? Because uh, once you get rid of the white tyrants, then the black tyrants will take over and do crimes just as bad as the white tyrants. Right. And she's going to say, where are we all going? And why are we bothering? And he's going to say... She says this, you can't answer that. And he loses his mind. (laughs) He's going to shout at her. I live the answer. In my village at home, it is the exceptional man who can even read a newspaper or who ever sees a book at all. I will go home and much of what I will have to say will seem strange to the people of my village. But I will teach and work and things will happen slowly and swiftly. At times it will seem that nothing changes at all. And then again, the sun dramatic events which make history leap into the future. And then quiet again, retrogression even, guns, murder, revolution... And I will have moments when I wonder if the quiet was not better than all the death and hatred. But I will look about my village at the illiteracy and disease and ignorance. And I will not wonder long. And perhaps, perhaps I will be a great man. I mean, perhaps I will hold on to the substance of truth and find my ways always with the right course. And perhaps for it, I will be butchered in my bed some night by the servants of empire. So he has hope. Right. And she mocks him by saying, hmm, the martyr. Yes. And, of course, um, he goes on to say, Or perhaps I will live to be a very old man, respected and esteemed esteemed in my new nation, and perhaps I will hold office. And this is what I'm trying to tell you, Alayo. Perhaps the things I believe now for my country will be wrong and outmoded, and I I will not understand and do terrible things to have things my way or merely to keep my power. Don't you see that there will be young men and women, not British soldiers then, but my own countrymen to step out of the shadows some evening and slit my slit my then useless throat don't you see they have always been there and that they will always be and that such a thing as my own death will be in advance they who might kill even me actually replenish all that i was now that's some deep philosophy it is and in lorraine hansberry's interview with studs turkle she says in her own words this is the most important statement in the entire book why do you think that's true? Because she's, well, in her words were, we've got to start. It doesn't matter how bad it can be. We have to start somewhere. And to me, and I'm not the pro here, but to me, I felt like that's also kind of a, a precursor to what's going to happen at the end of the book. Walter's faced with the same choice. I can give up all hope because all options are bad. I can become nihilistic or... I can go do the positive thing and worry about the consequences of it later on. And, of course, that brings us to Walter. Walter has left after he's basically ruined everyone's lives. I would have left, too. He walks out, and he goes somewhere, and we don't know what he's done until he comes back. And it turns out he's made a call, and he's called Mr. Linder. He has. And the idea is... He's going to take up the offer. He's going to sell out. But before he does, when he walks in, Benita takes a shot at him. And she says, there he is, Monsieur Le Petit Bourgeois Noir himself. There he is, symbol of a rising class, entrepreneur, titan of the system. Then she goes on to say, I look at you and I see the final triumph of stupidity in the world. 
And Walter ignores her. I mean, I see where she's coming from. She's angry. I would be too. So he comes back in. And uh, he's got a plan. And he has a philosophy too. And I find it really important to understand this philosophy. Because I think it speaks to all people who suffer or are oppressed. And I don't mean oppression in the sense that there's another group of people that's putting pressure on you from an outside force, the way that the white culture had, is oppressing the black culture or the way that the English colonial people are oppressing the Nigerian people. But this idea that there are forces outside, those, those are examples of oppression, but there are others that push people down mm-hmm. and they keep them uh, from having their own dignity, they sell out. Right. And when you sell your soul, you are not a real. You're not a dignified person. You lose. You lose your. I've seen it here in my community. You you don't bathe as much. Like you you lose a part of your humanity when you sell yourself out like that. And so she, he comes back in and he's going to kind of reflect on the kind of world that he lives in, and he's going to say something like. Ain't nothing but taken in this world. And he who takes most is smartest. And it doesn't make a damn bit of difference now. So the idea is they took from me, so I'm going to take from them. Right. And he's having um, uh, a a philosophy moment. He's having a worldview change right here in his desperation. And um, he says, Mama, you know it's all divided up. Life is, sure enough, between the takers and the tooken. And now you know why the rest of us do, because we all mixed up, mixed up bad. We got to looking around for the right and the wrong. We worry about it and cry about it and stay up nights trying to figure out about the right and the wrong of things all the time. But he goes on to say, but I'll say one thing for old Willie Harris. He's taught me something. He's taught me to keep my eye on what counts in this world. Yeah, thanks, Willie. So he's become very nihilistic. He's uh, become... I don't want to use the word Machiavellian because I know you're a big fan of Machiavelli, but there are some elements of it right there. And um, basically what he's doing is that he's going to surrender his dignity for advantage. And a lot of people do. You know, he's saying, well, this is the way that the world is, and it's certainly the way that his world is. These are not oppressors that came in to oppress him. These were his friends. They were. Mm-hmm. And they took something from him that was infinitely valuable, way more than money. Right. They took his stature and his family, the place in front of his son, his role as a husband and provider. They took everything, and they did it uh, in the name in the name of a friend. And so he's going to make this decision to 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 exploit. Okay, I'm going to be. I'm going to continue this cycle. Right. And this is what's offensive, I think, to Hansberry because people have, if that's the world, that's the colonial world that Asagai was talking about. If the, if the colonial oppressors come in and they oppress, and then the new people come in, the new Niger, in his case, the Nigerian leadership, are they going to be the new British? Or are they going to stop the cycle? Well, Hansberry's making the parallel. That's the same thing that happens on a personal level. Right. When you're exploited, what do you do? Are you going to be the new oppressor or are you going to take it and stop the cycle? And at this point, he's going to be option A. And 
as he's given this little uh, newfound insight into this new philosophy, Mama has a couple of comments about that. Um, she says, you're making me cry on the inside. And she says, how are you going to feel on the inside if you become this person? And, of course, Benny takes another stab at him and says to her mother, that is not a man. That is a toothless rat. So the whole family is watching Walter struggle with this idea. Am, am I going to destroy other people in the same way that I've been destroyed, or will I be something different? And there's a reason why Hansberry is laying this down. We'll get to it in a minute. Well, and of course, he's like, I don't care. I'm a rat. I just want the money. Right. And he's going to take the option, and he's going to fix it the best way he knows how. He's going to call Mr. Linder to come back in and work out a deal to sell the house at a profit. And, of course, Linder comes in, oh, hello. You know, he just comes like a complete buffoon. Well, I am certainly glad to hear from you people. Life can really be so much simpler when people let it most of the time. Well, with whom do I negotiate? You, Mrs. Younger, or your son here? And, of course, Ruth wants to get Travis out of the room as fast as possible. She's like, Travis, leave. And Mama goes, oh, no. Travis, you stay right here, and you make him understand what you're doing, Walter Lee. You teach him good, like Willie Harris taught you. You show where our five generations done come to. And, of course, Walter's going to look from her to the boy, who just grins at him, he innocently, Daddy, Daddy. And she's, go ahead, son. She folds her hands and closes her eyes. Go ahead. And I don't know how much time, you know, an actor, I guess, has to figure this out. Um He's going to let this sit. But Walter has this crisis. And he says, well, Mr. Linder, we called you. Well, because me and my family, well, we very plain people. Yes. I mean, I've worked as a chauffeur most of my life. And my wife here, she does domestic work in people's kitchens. So does my mother. I mean, we are plain people. Yes, Mr. Younger. And, uh, well, my father, he was a laborer most of his life. So he's saying, we're not rich. And Linder's like, yes, yes, I understand, I understand, whatever. And then he says, and my father, my father almost beat a man to death once because this man called him a bad name or something. You know what I mean? And, of course, how could he know what he means? (laughs) And I didn't know what he meant either. But what he meant was this. What I mean is that we come from a people who had a lot of pride. I mean, we are very proud people. And that's my sister over there, and she's going to be a doctor. And that's the first time he's ever said anything like that about mm-hmm. her. And positive, especially after some of the hateful things she just said about him. No kidding. I hadn't thought about that. He, she just called him a rat. A toothless rat. <laughs> it's even worse. That is worse, because they can't do anything. They don't get the cheese. <laughs> And we are very proud. And Linda's like, I'm sure that's very nice. So he's not getting it. What I'm telling you is that we called you over here to tell that we are proud and that this Travis, come here. This is my son, and he makes the sixth generation of our family in this country. And we have thought about your offer, and we've decided to move into our house. Woohoo! <laughs> so. And he goes on to say, we don't want to make no trouble for nobody or fight no causes. And we will try to be good neighbors, and that's all we got to say about that. We don't want your money. Turns and walks away. And this is what makes Walter an affirmative character. I mean, he's going to refuse to give up. Of course, he, he doubts, he retreats, he does bad things. But in the end, he chooses life. 
He does. And interestingly enough, Hansberry in the interview with Studs Turkle talks about the fact that she came from upper middle class um, black America. And she, in her own words, said the social class she came from represented maybe five to six to seven percent of African-Americans. And so she was very aware that she came from a privileged background. But she also said, even though we're wealthy, we live in a ghetto. And I had the experience with all people of all social classes in my neighborhood. And she's making an observation on social class behaviors. At one point, it looks like Walter is going to start, he's going to commit to exhibiting behaviors that will permanently keep him in the lower class. And then at the moment of crisis, he turns and he makes choices that will move him up and make him upwardly mobile choices about dignity and honor, choices about resiliency, choices about integrity. And when I say integrity, I mean psychological integrity where the parts of your personality are in agreement with each other. But I think, I mean, maybe... This is my interpretation. Well, it's certainly my interpretation, but I think she's saying we can end the cycle. Whatever right. the cycle is, wherever you are in the cycle, whatever your circumstances, racism, this play is not about racism. Racism is a tool to communicate something that is way deeper than just one particular people group oppressing another specific people group. I agree with you on that. And proof of that is the fact that this play strikes deep resonance with people of all race groups and ethnic groups and all social economic levels too. People watch this play and they intuitively feel Walter come to the precipice and make decisions to project himself into a better future. And he becomes a hero in that regard. Well, he is a hero. Is Walter the sum of his mistakes? Not really. You know, she's not drawing a picture of a victim, although these people have been victims of many bad things, but they are not victims. She wants to draw a picture of victors, right. of people who win, of resiliency. She's going to use the word manhood because that was their word for this concept at the time. But what is that? How does one climb out of the abyss of one's circumstances? How do you come out of the abyss of your of your own mistakes? And she has this optimistic vision that it, it can be done. You right. won't, it's not that you're going to have the perfect scenario because you're not, but it can be, you can stop the cycle. And it's a beautiful thought. Well, I think the point is, Linda was not the threat. Right. Lil, Willie was not the threat. Perhaps they were their own threat. And when they were able to, stand up to whatever is inside of them, all that other stuff became something that they could conquer. And I think what's going on with Walter at this point that Hansberry wants to communicate is when he makes this decision, he is taking control of his own interpretation of himself. He defines himself. If he would have gone down the Willie road, then the Willie behaviors would have defined who he was. But he's decided I will step back and make my own definition of who I am as a resilient person with integrity. And I'm going to make a hard decision. And I want to point this out. The hard decision is hard because moving towards freedom comes from taking responsibility. And taking responsibility brings hardship. 
Well, they're certainly going to have hardship. Yes. I they're mean, moving Clyburn, into the neighborhood, Clyburn Park. Yeah, and, and Hansberry knows, we talked about this in the, in the first episode, that that's going to be a lifetime of struggle, but it's worth it. And it was worth it for her. She sees it worth makes she wants it to be worth it for the black community but i think she would like to say it's worth it for all peoples yes and so the resounding message from raisin in the sun as we see through walter here in the end is take control of your dignity take control of defining yourself and at that note i want to end up that we kind of have some fun as a guy has asked her to marry him and go to africa and she's going to end it with this kind of lighthearted. And Mama's going to say, he did. You ain't old enough to marry nobody. And, of course, Benita's going to say, go to Africa, Mama. Be a doctor. And Mama's going to say, yes, baby. And, of course, Walter's going to say, girl, you don't get all them silly ideas out of her yet. You better marry you some money with a man with some loot. So here we go. back. They're back to the sibling fun. Yeah. And he's going to say, now, I think George Murchison... And he's gonna, you know, he's gonna trail off talking about the virtues of that guy. And Benita would say, she says, I wouldn't marry him if he was Adam and I was Eve. Another way of saying, not the last man on earth. And of course, um, Ruth is biting her lip, and it says here in the in the footnote that she's uh, her pride is exploding in front of Mama. She goes, "Yes, Lena," because uh, of course. She's got her family, she's got a home, and more importantly, she has a husband who's found himself. Yeah, Walter's choice has redeemed the whole family. Yeah. And the last character on the stage is not Walter, it's Mama. And she's going to stand at last, and she's going to have that dang plant (laughs) (laughs) on the table before her, and the light is going to come down, and she's going to look around at all the walls and ceilings, and suddenly, despite herself, while the children call below, a great heaving thing rises in her, and she puts her fist to her mouth to stifle. She wants to cry because she survived. She's going to grab her plant and leave that apartment for the last time. You got to love the play. Oh, it's a wonderful play. And so much goes on. So much gets packed into such a short amount of dialogue. It's the it's so deep in the simplest of ways that really it's it's what beauty really is. And Hansbury often talked about that in the interview about the universals and the particulars and uh, how she would use a few particulars to pack so many universals into the characters. And the only sad thing is she only has the one play because in her own life, you know, cancer struck early. And so this is all that we have. But I will say she drove, she got inspiration from Langston Hughes in our poetry episode next week. I know you're excited about that. More poetry supplements. (laughs) Yay. Yay. You're going to do it. Mm. But you're going to like it. Langston Hughes uh, was uh, where she got the title, Raisin in the Sun. She had originally wanted to take the title from another one of his poems. And I want to take some time uh, to kind of look at Langston Hughes, the Harlem Renaissance, what that was, and feature some of these really important pieces of poetry that influenced her in, in very important ways. Well, great. Well, if you've enjoyed uh, being with us, uh, please hit subscribe and check out Facebook and Instagram and our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. And like I've said before, check out Skywriting, check out whatever form of communication we use. But uh, keep up with us. Let us know what you think. Peace out.